Hello and welcome to Inside Out, the podcast where we redefine success with entrepreneurs and other badass millennials. I'm your host, Jane Z. Today's guest is not an entrepreneur, but she certainly has hustle. Christine Worthman was set on becoming a music writer the moment she got her hands on a Rolling Stone magazine in middle school. After earning her degree in journalism, music industry, and music history at Syracuse, Christine began, in her words, freelancing her face off, starting in Baltimore and then moving to New York City. Her first few writing jobs weren't in music, but she took the opportunity to get herself to shows, writing album reviews, and writing as a contributor for essentially whoever would take her. She eventually landed her first music writing gig at College Music Journal and has since worked for XXL and Complex. Today, Christine is the managing editor for Billboard Magazine. That's right, the Billboard. We talked about putting together their last issue with BTS, her most memorable artist interviews, the good and the bad, and what it takes to get noticed as a music writer. All that coming up. If you're new here, be sure to hit follow on Apple or Spotify for new episodes every Tuesday. If you enjoy this episode, I would love if you'd take two seconds to give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or two minutes to write a review. You can find me, Jane Z, on Instagram at Inside Out with Jane. In the meantime, enjoy the show. I'm so excited to chat with you about all things music and writing. Likewise, likewise. I'm I'm ready. Ready to be on the <laughs> other side of the, yes, the interview hot seat. In yeah. the hot seat. I'd love to know, just, you know, paint us a picture of who young Christine was growing oh, up geez. in Baltimore and <laughs> what kind of music you listened to, what you were into. Yes, totally. So I moved to Baltimore when I was... I think I was like nine going on 10. And this was a very important time for me because uh, that introduced me to the radio station, WHFS, 99.1. And it was like Baltimore and DC's like alternative rock station. And this was in like 1994, I think. Yeah. So, so I'm 37 now. And at the time when I moved to Baltimore, I just like was, it was right in the thick of like alt rock music was super popular. And like, so I was listening to Nirvana because I have two older siblings also. So I kind of got like a pass, like certain things that maybe my parents were never too restrictive, but like if there were certain things that perhaps a nine or 10 year old was not really supposed to air quotes, listen to, um, I got a pass because I had my older siblings who were feeding me stuff too. Um, but this alt rock station was super cool. I listened to the smashing pumpkins. I like got really into the smashing pumpkins. I remember like their box set. One of their box sets was like my prize possession. It was this like CD box set. It was very cool. But then that sort of transitioned into like listening to no doubt and listening to garbage. And then I kind of backtracked a little and I was listening to whole. So yeah, so lots of like alt rock. And then also I always had a super big interest in like R and B and hip hop. And like, I remember one of the first CDs that ever made it into like, I'm one of four kids and we, we all kind of like shared CDs because that's just what you did. You had a bigger collection if you learned how to share. And (laughs) I remember getting like the salt and pepper, very necessary album. And like, I loved it. I was like, you know, 
memorizing the lyrics to like What a Man, which is very funny. And retrospect as like a little kid uh, being like, I got a good man. Um, and then like listening to like TLC also around mm-hmm. the same time. And I remember like really liking LL Cool J because like his videos too, like played on MTV. So like MTV was a huge influence. So mm-hmm. I had just like, this was obviously like pre-social media and everything, but there were still so many places to look around and find very cool music. And then on top of that, I was just like going to shows whenever I could. And like my first one was, was kind of lame though. So whenever people, when I'm in conversations with people and they're like, what was your first concert? And they're like, oh, like my parents took me to see like Eric Clapton or whatever. I'm like, I saw Matchbox 20. and <laughs> Very of the times. Yeah, it was, you know, it, it was cool. It was like uh, HFS, the alt-rock station, they used to host these, like, these shows. They were called Five O'Clock Shadow Shows, and they were mm. free. And they were down in the harbor in Baltimore. And, like, my mom gave us permission. I was like, please, please, please. Like, really, I need to go. It's my first <laughs> concert. I have to go. And she was yes. like, all right we have to convince your siblings to like take you. And so I did. And so we went down there and I was probably in like seventh or eighth grade. I had a disposable camera and I was oh like up God. at the front of the stage, like taking these really terrible pictures that I still have. And I also got, cause I had to, I got a band t-shirt because first concert have to yeah. commemorate this. And I still have that too. So. You still have it. Oh yeah. <laughs> Does oh, it yeah. still fit? <laughs> it, uh, so because it was the nineties, we wore everything enormous. So mm, yes, right. it does. Yeah. yeah. I got like an XXL at the time. So it was almost like a dress <laughs> on me. So yeah, still, I can still sport that. Yeah. Wow. So you were like a really cool kid. Ah, that's debatable. <laughs> They're so kind, Jane. Thank you. Yeah. In my mind. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> when did you start reading Rolling Stone? So I went to like a pretty small school in Baltimore for like fourth through eighth grade. And my class was pretty small. And I, because of that, I like found a friend who we had very similar interests we also really like listening to the band Silverchair, uh, which is like this Australian rock band. They were like kind of these hot surfer dudes. And so that was my friend, Emily. Shout out to Emily. Uh, she subscribed to Rolling Stone. And I remember she was the one who gave me my first copy of Rolling Stone. It was one that she had finished reading. And it was the January 1998 issue of Rolling Stone with Fiona Apple on the cover. Mm. And I actually kept the issue. I still have it in my my collection of magazines. I just remember it was like this picture of Fiona Apple. Like the cover is her and she's like, her face is sort of above the water, but the rest of her is, uh, looks like she's in a mm. pool or something. It's like such a cool photo. I mean, I loved her album title. I just thought that she was so cool. And I remember reading the piece. I think uh, the writer was this guy, Chris Heath. And I just remember thinking like, wow, he's like having a conversation with this person who like I'm listening to them on an album and he gets to ask them questions about their music. And that's mm. so cool. Cause like most of what I'm doing, you know, you have to imagine this is before like I was exploring too much on the internet. This is like before you could go onto like a lyrics website, like genius or something like that. You were getting all your information from these magazines. And yeah. I just thought it was so cool to have that sort of direct connection with an artist and like, get to ask them questions about 
music that you were sort of thinking about even when you were sitting alone in your room listening to their album. So that was sort of my first issue of Rolling Stone. And then that opened the floodgates and I would go to like Barnes and Noble or my local record store where I applied to work like four times and they never hired me. It was very sad. No. Uh, <laughs> well, they lost. I know. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. But I, I would go and I would just buy up all these magazines. I remember then started reading Spin, Rolling Stone. I remember finding like British magazines later on and like just learning how many different types of music magazines there were. It seemed like a cool job to me. Yeah. Oh, it still sounds like a cool job. (laughs) (laughs) So was that pretty much when you decided like, this is what I want to do? Kind of. I actually, it was sort of interesting. I can't remember which copy of Rolling Stone it was, but there was this one writer named Jenny Ellescu who she still writes for Rolling Stone sometimes. And I know that she has like a radio show, but I recognized her byline a bunch in Rolling Stone. So this is either like eighth grade or ninth grade or something. But I remember on the TOC of an, uh, the table of contents of an issue of Rolling Stone, she got a shout out from the editor and the editor had said something like, congrats to Jenny. She's, you know, like all-star writer or whatever. She just finished her master's at Queens College in English. And I was like, oh, Okay, so like, if you want to do music writing, maybe you should be an English major. Okay, so that that idea was planted in my head early in my high school career. And I always liked English, I liked reading, I liked writing, and I loved music. It was a very like vague career path that was sort of placed in front of me. But I was like, it's good to it's good to keep on the brain. And so I did sort of almost like casually decide, like I was never willing to be like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, you know, like say it out loud and tell everybody I'm going to be a music writer because I think I, at that point was a little too timid. I was sort of like, it'd be cool to be a music writer. Like, but mm. I'll keep this little secret to myself. But then I feel like that's a yeah. very middle child thing too. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely, I was just like, yeah, you know, maybe if I'm interested, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll think about you know, doing, doing that cool thing. But yeah, I ended up going to Syracuse for undergrad and I was a journalism major and it just so happened that they also had like a music history and music industry. Like they had two different programs and I was like, oh, cool. So I sort of cobbled together something that was like journalism and music. And then I did put all my eggs in one basket and I was like, all right, let's go. <laughs> let's <laughs> see. <laughs> it's funny because when you think English major, a lot of people just go into it because they love writing and reading yep. and don't see a particular career path. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. But was, for you, yeah. you kind of went backwards. You were like, I love what these people are doing. How do I do that? Yep, exactly. And then so after Syracuse, you moved to New York City. I did. Yeah, I I graduated from Syracuse in 2006. And, you know, I moved home. And I still in my Gmail have some archived emails of all the places I was applying to in New York, because like, I really wanted to be there. I had some friends who lived there already. I just had this idea of like, all right, if you want to cover music, you got to go to where the music is. Baltimore has a good music scene, but it's much smaller than New York City's. So I remember I, I did take a job at like at a hospital in their communications department for like a month and a half because I was just like, well, I need a job. Like I need to do something. And so I, I did that in Baltimore for 
the summer, but I was just like so miserable. <laughs> and I was oh. like, get me out of here. <laughs> not the same and as music writing. Not the same. So <laughs> I was like taking a bus up to New York every weekend and going to shows. And eventually I found this job. It was a full-time freelance internship, which now technically would probably be illegal because of the new internship rules. But it basically meant it was at New York Press, which was an alt-weekly newspaper. And it meant that you worked full time, but you only got paid by the article and the pay was like trash, you know, it was just terrible. So you're like writing as much as you can, but you know, it's not a daily, it's a weekly. So there's kind of a cap on how much stuff you can get in each issue, but it was such a great experience. I got to write, I got to edit, I was going out to cover live events and I wasn't just covering music too. It was sort of like a nice crash course in New York City, like politics and marches and all sorts of stuff. And it, it really just opened my eyes to sort of the different possibilities of journalism. And then yeah. it kind of solidified for me that I really want to do the music thing. So like, wow. if I can make that happen, I want to try to figure that out. So yeah. That, yeah, that was that was gig number one. I'm just imagining early 20s, Christine, like hustling around New York, going to shows, going to protests. Yeah, yeah. it was, it was something. It was once I had finished my internship at New York Press, it was like, ah, like I am broke. Um, so, you know, money I is a thing. money is a thing, you know, uh, full, full transparency. Like it wasn't like I was ever concerned about like, Oh God, I'm not gonna like, I definitely had a safety net. You know, it's like, I think mm -hmm. it's always important to put out there. It's just like, yeah, like if it didn't work out, if I ran out of money, my parents have a home in Baltimore, I could always have moved home. It was never like dire straits, but yeah, as a 22 year old, you're just like, Oh man, I'm eating pizza every night. Like I gotta make this work and I gotta figure out like how to pay my rent check and like all that stuff. So after New York Press, I got tons of clips. I had so much experience. It was really great. But the job market at the time was a little challenging. And I remember I applied to something on like Media Bistro, which is like a career website or whatever. And I got a job at this magazine called Parent Guide. Parent Guide was this small parenting magazine that was totally local. There was one for Manhattan and one for like Nassau County and one for Suffolk and one for, you know, whatever. And I was the entertainment editor at the parenting magazine. Was it where I wanted to be? No, not really. But the cool thing was that that job was so nine to five that I was able to get out of work early and then I would go to shows. I was freelancing like crazy when I worked at that job. I had a very understanding editor in chief who knew that I didn't really want to work in a parenting magazine, um, <laughs> but she would let me use like the conference room to like do phoners with bands like on my lunch break, which was awesome. It was kind of the beauty of like having steady paycheck, but then also like having enough time to pursue like my passion of music writing. Yeah, I was going to shows like every night. I had friends who uh, worked in music booking, so like we would sort of bop around to all these shows across the city and. It was awesome. I was doing a lot of live reviews for New York Press, doing album reviews for this magazine called Zinc. I wrote a little for Nylon. I remember I wrote a piece for Bust Magazine, Filter Magazine, like anyone who I could sort of find who was like, we're accepting contributors. I was like, I am a contributor. Please let me write for you. 
And so, yeah, I was just kind of hustling and trying to talk to as many people as possible for for a couple years. And then I, I am kind of a, a nerd. I do really like school. School's great. Um, love school. And <laughs> love school. Love school. And I ended up going to grad school at NYU and doing sort of this choose your own adventure master's program, which was through the Gallatin School. And I did music, media, and cultural studies. I wrote my thesis about like Riot Girl and like the coverage of Riot Girl and feminism and all this stuff. And then when I was actually at grad school, I got an internship with CMJ, which funny enough, I didn't realize it until recently, but Jenny Elskew, who was the Rolling Stone writer who I admired, she also worked at CMJ. So I was like, wow. Yeah. So that was very cool. So I got an internship there and then that sort of transitioned into a full-time job. So I think I was like 25 or 26, maybe when I got my first like music journalism editorial job, like full-time. I was there for a couple of years and it was like, it was a dream. I was so excited. <laughs> Just for listeners, CMJ stands for? Oh yes, the College Music Journal. They started back in like the late 70s, early 80s by a fellow named Bobby Haber. And he was like, I think when he was in college, he started like a newsletter that was CMJ. And then that changed to uh, a magazine. And then it was the website. They would host this thing called the CMJ Music Marathon in New York every year. And there were something like 1,200 shows that would take place over the course of a week. And it was very like kind of like South by where it was like each band would play like a 20 minute set at like Mercury Lounge or Irving Plaza or the Knitting Factory or anywhere throughout New York. That week was always insane. You did not sleep. You were covering shows. I had a camera that I didn't really know how to use and I would take pictures and send them to our editors. And, you know, it's like your little photo to go with your, your review having it be the the first time where like I, I didn't have to free, I mean I was still freelancing a little bit at that time just because I enjoyed it but really once I once I got there and I was just like take a breath and be like I did it <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. I got here <laughs> I mean making that switch from hustling almost 24 7 because you're around the clock going to shows and stuff oh, yeah. too. Like, the hours that were rough. Been, that must yeah, have been really it, tiring I but, was quite tired my coffee intake shot through the roof it was great I, I wouldn't trade it. It was very cool. <laughs> For anyone wanting to go into music writing as a career, would you say that that's kind of the hardest part of breaking into the industry is like the hustle and grind? Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. I think today's landscape is a bit different where now you sort of have this extra layer where like sometimes writers also have to sell themselves as personalities and I'm sure that existed kind of at the time when, when I was coming up and, you know, music blogging was like huge. Like there was a bar, I remember that was like down on the Lower East Side where like the music bloggers would hang out. And like, I wasn't really in their scene, but I would go and be like, oh, that person like founded that website. Oh, they did this. And it, so it was sort of this like golden age of music blogging. But I think now you also have to have this extra like you got to be pretty active on Twitter. You got to like have mm -hmm. like a pretty decent Instagram presence. There are just some extra things that you have to take care of. But for me at the time, it, like it was figuring out the pay and then the hours. And also like, since I did have a full-time job for most of the time that I was also freelancing, you got to like spin this one plate over here. And then you mm. have all these other ones like kind of in a row on this side. And also just setting yourself apart in the pack when you reach out to an editor and you're like, let me cover this band. And they're mm. like, why? Mm -hmm. I have staff writers. Why would I let you do that? It's tricky. Like you kind of, you have to find your niche. Like 
everybody wants to talk to celebrities. So if someone's like, what's the thing you love to do? Like, what's the thing you're really good at? It's like interviews, baby. I am your person. Like put me down in front of Justin Bieber and let me talk to him. And it's like, no, I'm probably not going to let you do that. But like, if you can think of like a different sort of think piece angle or something that considers like different trends and topics. Like that's, that's more of your best bet. So before you were a full-time music writer, how did you get in touch with artists? <laughs> Cause being in the music world, it's like very fluid and artists yes. can be late or yeah. unresponsive or all these things. So how oh, yeah. did you manage that? You know, I think that most of the artists I was interviewing were either small enough that I could hit them up directly. And I think this is probably still true. They're either small enough that you can hit them up directly and you're texting them or calling them or whatever, or you're going through a publicist. Going to shows was always a really good sort of networking tool also all the label and publicist and basically the industry people, they stand at the back of the room because mm. they're not just there to pay attention to the show. They're there to schmooze kind of when you go to these shows just to like network, that mm. was a big part of it. And so because of those connections, then it's like, especially with newer bands, it's like, Oh, okay, this person is on the rise. Let me see if they're signed to a label. If they're not, maybe I've been to one of their shows and met someone who I could connect with them and be like, I want to talk to your artist. Another thing though, actually bands are really good nowadays at putting all of their contact information on Instagram and Facebook. And so if you go onto like a band's Facebook info page, you would be shocked maybe by how many of them have like a direct email address or like interviews, like US touring, international touring, like hit up, they give you all their contact information. Mm. So it's less mysterious. It seems much easier today to find out like how to get in touch with an artist. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Can you describe a little bit about your writing style and whether, say, you focus on more the technical aspects of the music versus like the culture and the fans and the fashion oh, sure. and how your writing style has evolved too throughout your career? Certainly. Uh, great question, Jane. I will say that when I was in college, the things that you were always taught, it was like, don't write in first person. You are there as a reporter. You want to get the artist perspective and the fan perspective, but you don't inject too much of yourself in the story. And I think that that was true for a little while. And then as soon as that era of like music blogging sort of like took off, you had so many more writers who were so interested in sort of putting themselves in the story to varying degrees of success. I think that there are certain writers who are so good at just conveying a scene by describing themselves in their surroundings. I definitely still kind of have, I think that journalism school thing in the back of my head where it's like, don't run first person. Don't do, you know, like don't put mm. too much of yourself in there. I do tend to focus a little more on some of the technical stuff or some of the facts that challenge that never gets easier, which is writing about sound, writing about music, figuring out non-corny ways to talk about like a guitar part. That's always tricky. But I do think that, you know, when you write about a band or an artist, you should kind of bring in certain elements of the culture as well, because that is impacting their sound. That's impacting their reception. It'd be like talking about BTS without bringing up the army I don't know how you could do that because mm -hmm. the army is such a huge part of the band. They sort of like come together. So I do think it also depends on like the publication you're working for. Like 
after I was at CMJ, I went to Double XL, the hip hop magazine. And at CMJ, it was definitely like pretty colorful writing. We were allowed to sort of do whatever. And Double XL had a pretty good crop of people who were writers with these huge personalities. And so that would come across in their writing and it worked. It didn't read like a journal entry. That's always the mm. tricky thing when you're like, this song needs this to me. And it's like, right. no, 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 no. Like, don't do that. <laughs> when I was at Complex Then, which is where I went after Double XL, we used to do stuff like like songs we hated from this year. Sometimes we were just like vicious. I was like, oh, God. Um, some of the things that I've written on that website, I look back on it. I'm just like, oh, God. That's like, <laughs> oh, like you oh, can no. tamp, like, tamp down that opinion a little bit. Right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it definitely varies like based on your publication, based on like the current trends. But, yeah, right now working at Billboard, we like appeal to definitely some consumer readers, but lots of industry people. So, like... Mm. They don't really want to read about like me, Christine Worthman, and what this song means to me. They want to know like mm. what's the band's publishing deal. Okay, so at Billboard, would you say it's much more focused on the business side? I would. We certainly, even in the consumer facing like artist profile kind of stuff that we put together, we're trying to inject a lot of business into those stories. Our most recent cover was with BTS. And so we certainly wrote about BTS. Yeah, it was great. It was really fun. The photos were phenomenal. Our writer got some sit down time with the group, interviewing them, just kind of getting their feedback on certain things. But we also talk about some of the biz angles of the band and like their label deals and publishing and all all that kind of stuff. I definitely want to hear more about this BTS issue. Maybe you can walk us through the process of what it takes to put together a magazine now that you're the managing editor of all the magazines, (laughs) which is crazy and amazing. Uh, But yeah, start to finish. What does the process look like? Sure. You know, picking who goes on the cover, how to piece the stories together. Um, Absolutely. So I am the managing editor of Billboard and I work pretty exclusively on the magazine. We publish probably 18, 19 issues a year. So we usually come out like once every three weeks-ish. And then we obviously have tons of really good coverage and content on our website. But the, the physical magazine is what I specialize in. The way that it kind of works is the features team comes up with like a lineup and they have to shop it by our editor-in-chief, our editorial director, Hannah Karp. And she sort of gives green light, gives feedback, but they are sort of the ones who are coming up with like, okay, here are our cover ideas here because their whole job is to pay attention to those trends, see who's releasing new music. Do they have an interesting business story that we could sort of get into? And from there, once we have the lineup, then we kind of have a meeting about it and we say, okay, like what else is going in the magazine? And we have different sections in the magazine. So we have like a news section that's called the market. We have like a up and coming artist section that's called the sound. We have the feature well, we have a bunch of different sections and each one of those teams puts together a lineup. So you know what's going into their section. So I kind of look at the lineups overall Once we have the lineups, we either meet about them or then the next step is trying to get together like a preliminary map of the issue. So the issue map, it basically breaks down, like, let's say that you had a magazine in front of you of any publication, you would flip through and it's like, okay, we have the cover, you have like an advertisement here, you have an edit story here, this year. And so all of that goes onto this map, which is just a bunch of tiny squares. Each square symbolizes a page in the magazine and you kind of lay it all out that way. So I'm communicating a lot with the production team. 
uh, to put that together. And then we also come up with deadlines for everybody. So it's not just like making sure that there's a writer and an editor assigned to it and it has a home in the magazine. You got to think about like, what's the layout? You know, what's it going to look like? So you have to meet with design, figure out like, okay, uh, what kind of imagery is going to go with this? So you talk to the photo team. And then once the copy comes in, we call it like routing the copy. And so you route it through these different stations. It's with an editor. It's with our copy editors. You need to clean it up. It's back to the editors. So I do a lot of like the tracking of that kind of stuff. And then once we get into like the final stages of the magazine, I look at every single page. I read every single piece of copy. I have one of the last sets of eyeballs that kind of scans through a page and marks any edits. And then we kind of pass it through a couple more stations and then we send it to the printer. And that's it. And you can't make any more changes. And it's a little scary sometimes, but it's very fun. And it's so satisfying to have like a thing that you pick up when you're done mm-hmm. and you're just mm-hmm. like, I made this. I helped make this. So yeah, it's very cool. that's yeah. very cool. As you were talking, not that this is like any comparison, but I was one of the editors for a high school yearbook. You know. <laughs> and you like, know. it's very simple. Yeah. You map out every single page. You got to make sure all the photos, the assets are in. Yep. Work uh-huh. with, you know, design and all of that. We are speaking the same language. I would argue, though, I mean, honestly, you're dealing with so many more photos <laughs> and teasers. Yeah, you're dealing with teenagers. <laughs> That's impossible. That's off you. But it, it is. It's really satisfying. It's very, can be super fast-paced. I'm sure that you probably experienced this with the yearbook where people will take as much time as you give them to do something. So if you go to an editor and say, hey, can you have this in next Tuesday? Even And they'll say, Sure even though in theory they could probably finish it by Friday, they're going to take until Tuesday. So you got to keep like a realistic balance between like, what's your actual drop dead? You know, like what's the deadline that you have to hit? Otherwise the magazine is not coming out. And then like, what's realistic? Like, you know, you go to an editor and they're like, okay, I just did this interview. When does the copy have to come in? And I'm like, now, like, that's not realistic. So (laughs) sort of, you want to like be as flexible as possible without throwing all your deadlines out the window. So it sounds like your job right now is a lot more people managing and project managing versus writing. Yeah. I certainly do get a chance to do a lot of writing when I have the time. That was sort of like a a choice that I made early in my career too, where it's like, do you want to be a writer or do you want to be an editor? Mm. And, you know, I think that my editing skills were stronger than my writing skills. I think that I enjoyed that process of like putting stuff together. And, you know, to be honest, choosing the editor path over the writer path, it came with a little more security, just like a Mm. little bit. With a writer, you really are having to just like produce and produce and produce. And I think that that was not something that I felt comfortable being like, yes, I want to be beholden to that all the time. So now I sort of have this great situation for me where it's like, oh, okay, I get to manage and project manage and people manage. Then I get to write when I have time or when I choose to. So that's pretty good. Yeah, it sounds like a great balance for your point in your career where you've done a lot of the writing and now you get to sit back and someone else have a turn. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) But maybe reminiscing a little bit, what were some of your most memorable interviews 
and so I have the good, bad, and ugly. <laughs> I have a couple. Let's see. Well, we'll start. Uh, some of the good ones, I would say I got a chance to interview Kimya Dawson, who was in The Moldy Peaches, and it was supposed to be like a 20-minute phoner. This is when I was working at the parenting magazine. I'm sneaking into conference rooms to make phone calls. But she and I ended up talking for like an hour and a half. And she was just, usually you don't get that kind of connection with someone unless you're physically sitting in front of them. So a phoner is what people usually call a phone interview. And then you say an in-person interview. And it's very important when you're reaching out to publicists to distinguish what kind of interview it's going to be. But with Kimya Dawson, I got to sit there and just chat with her on the phone. And she was so cool. She was just like so warm. And we were talking about the moldy peaches. I think she had just had a kid. We were like talking about her experience as a mother. It was, it was very cool. Um, another one that was sort of like a, a personal fave because I had written about Riot Girl. I got to interview Kathleen Hanna um, mm. from Bikini Kill. And that was another phoner. But the best thing that happened was we're you know sitting there chatting and in the background, I could hear this, the song Bad to the Bone start playing. Like very loudly. It was like bed to the bone. And I was like, what is that? And she was like, oh shit, sorry. That's my alarm clock. I have an ah. alarm clock that plays <laughs> bad to the bone. And it went off like two more times during the course of our interview. And it was oh just my very God. funny. I also have had the pleasure of interviewing Carly Rae Jepsen a couple of mm. times. She's just a delight. You know, she's like, she perfectly matches like the personality of her music. She's yeah. like just so friendly and warm and very fun. She's Canadian. She's, yeah, <laughs> she's great to talk to. So she's definitely been a fun favorite of mine as well. And then most recently I got to talk to Lucy Dacus, who she is a solo artist in her own right. And then she's also a member of Boy Genius with Phoebe Bridgers and Julian Baker. And Lucy was the first sit down post-COVID, inter- well, mm. not post-COVID, post-vaccine right. uh, interview <laughs> that I got to got to sit down. And we sat down at like an apartment in Brooklyn and just sat at a kitchen table and chatted. We talked about writing and books and she had really cool nail polish on. And I was just like, yeah, <laughs> it was very fun. Any not so fun interview experiences? Yeah, I've had a couple <laughs> of those too. I, off the top, the band Purity Ring, I interviewed them when I was working at Complex. Now, some bands are very touchy about this. I asked them what they were listening to at the time that they recorded their new album. And so many bands nowadays and artists are way more open about like, yeah, I was listening to, I don't know, to Tom Waits when I was recording this song. I was listening to whoever they're, they're interested in and they're not shy mm-hmm. about explaining who their influences are. And I remember asking the members of Purity Ring who they were listening to at the time they recorded their album. And they were like, we don't really listen to other people. It was just so, what? oh man, it was just, it was so awkward. That I'm sounds sure, like, like a lie. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> come on, everybody listens to somebody. It'd be like me yeah. saying like, I don't read anyone else. I don't read any writers. It's like, <laughs> okay. Are you sure about that? So, yeah, exactly. So that was sort of bizarre. I do remember another one. I interviewed Greg Gillis from Girl Talk like years and years ago. He must have done, this happens sometimes where artists do a ton of interviews and they just get tired throughout the day. And I think that he had had a couple interviews before me. And so I was asking him like a couple questions. And whenever I start to interview a person, I ask them background questions. I'm like, listen, I know I could get these facts on the internet. Like I want to hear them like from the horse's mouth. Like you confirm this stuff for me. And I think I was asking him some questions and he 
just got so sassy. And I was like, <laughs> so we got into it a little bit and I was like, all right, are you, you good now? And he's like, yeah, I'm sorry. And he, you know, so like sometimes mm, okay. there is this kind of self-awareness. And then the, the last one that I thought of, it wasn't necessarily a bad interview. I interviewed Demi Lovato when I was at Complex mm, and yes. that was sort of funny because I had like 40 minutes with her sitting on a couch and like her publicist was like not far away, which always puts this weird pressure, like someone's listening to your conversation. And at first she was very like guarded and then she sort of warmed up, it, you know, it was sort of this like fluctuation of like hot, cold, hot, cold. Some of the questions that I was asking her because it was in pop culture at the time, it was like she had been friends with Selena Gomez and then they weren't friends. And some of it had to do with Justin Bieber. And I remember at the time there was a very scandalous, there was a petition going around to have Justin Bieber deported. And it was kind of, you know, like a half joke. And I asked her, I was like, oh, did you sign the petition to have him deported? And she was like, no comment, but like, she thought that was kind of funny. And then when it ran in the story, she didn't think it was as funny. So she was not a fan of the published work. I think she, she tweeted something like, don't believe everything that you read. And I was like, it was, it was a Q and A, like I have the audio. What do you want? So, (laughs) so so you have different levels of, of challenge with certain artists, but overall, I mean, geez, it's like, you you can barely complain about it, you know, because it's still like, yeah, it's still pretty cool. It's part of the job yeah, it's at part this of the job. point. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess to close out, your career sounds awesome. Your job right now sounds like exactly the right fit. Do you feel like you're living your dream? I do. I really do. I think it's, you know, a job is a job. So like sometimes there are moments of stress. Sometimes there are moments of like, ah, today sucked, you know. But yeah. at the end of the day, I'm surrounded by people who talk about music all the time. It is my job to do what I would do in my free time, to pay attention to new music, to go see shows, to see new artists, to discover new bands. If I went back and found like nine or 10 year old Christine and I was like, yo, one day, this is what you're going to do. Her head would explode. Yeah. <laughs> you would make her day, her year. I would, I would. I would. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your stories and your experience. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. I'd love to hear what you got out of this episode. Take a picture of where you're listening from and tag me on a story at Inside Out with Jane. I'll be back here next Tuesday. And in the meantime, chat with you online. Bye.